0: But I do want to say that there is a question mark about whether we can actually continue to do narrative into next season. Our goal is to be back in early August or September. But frankly, there is an enormous amount of goodwill for the show. And there's enormous amount of fantastic patrons. When you think about everything that we've uncovered from 2016, and those of you who have been with us for a long time, you'll remember Trump Russia. And our investigation into trump russia and how that led us to understanding that there was a multinational attack on america by these foreign national forces by these forces we dubbed the enemies of democracy and these attacks have been continuing since 2016. they continue today a lot of what we've been seeing in the news just this week involved the same kind of forces whether it's the coup attempt the insurrection or even the occupation of the supreme court these are all things that are ultimately have foreign influences and that's been a big core part of my reporting whether it's reporting about jeffrey epstein or elon musk or even benjamin netanyahu or the uae's involvement in 2016 these are the stories that you've only really seen on narrative, because that's been the only place that has been able to run those stories. For a long time, people said to me, why are you focusing on January the 6th? You know, it's overblown the amount of January the 6th investigations you're doing. And I refused to stop because it was clear to me that what was going on was it was a massive insurrection and a coup attempt. And we were right. All our reporting has been borne out to be exactly correct in the last few weeks of hearings. And again, that, those shows, that reporting could not have happened unless you were there to support us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. We're really proud of that. But as things stand right now, we do not have the funding to go into another season. My hope is that we will find that money. And my hope is that you will step up as well and help us find that money by joining up on Patreon because that is the number one place that we get our revenue from. So it costs as little as $5 a month We recommend $10 a month. It's a bit of money. I get that it's a bit of money in tough times. But when you think about the work that we're doing, when you think about the fact that we're helping democracy survive, and we think about the impact we've already proven to have on the ecosystem and on the new cycle, it, it is money well spent. And it's money well spent for you and for generations still to come. And hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special edition of Narrative Live. It wasn't even on the books. It's not even on the schedule. Here we are. You could still hear, I've got a bit of sickness in my throat, thanks to uh, COVID. That was a a fun 48 hours I had. So apologies, I'm going to be coughing from time to time. Maybe we won't even make the whole show, but uh, yeah, maybe you can not do the whole show, but we'll try. Eric was going to be here, but then he decided he wanted to go raise money instead. So uh, thanks, Eric. We appreciate all the all the effort you're putting in to making Narrative financially secure. And I hope you all took to heart the message uh, we just ran earlier on about how important it is that everyone step up and support Narrative as we head into the next season. There's a huge season ahead, but we are running out of money to fund it. So please uh, consider joining us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. You know, I will say about the new COVID, it's like the old COVID. I had I had it way back two years ago, and the new one is just as, as gross. I will say as well that these new antiviral medications, I think it's called Plaxovid, are phenomenal because within just 48 hours, I have been transformed from being you know, practically dead on a couch or in a hospital room to uh, you know being able to communicate with you right now. And that's because of this uh, really a miracle drug. Plaxivit by Pfizer almost immediately makes you feel better. So if you or someone you know falls for another bout of COVID, then uh, you know, make sure you reach for your doctors and uh, and ask them to give you Plaxivit bit of a mission to try and get them to do that for you. So there's all sorts of rules and regulations, especially here in Canada, but wherever you might be, it might be easier to get it. So a highly recommended. very effective antiviral. It's got to be taking the first three or four days of symptoms onsetting, but uh, really, really, really powerful and useful medication considering how awful COVID can really be. On tonight's show, we're going to do a little bit of a recap on the story that I wasn't here for, and I just missed telling you about it. So I thought I'll come back and talk a little bit about the incredible testimony uh, that we heard this week of Cassidy Hutchinson and, uh, and this remarkable storytelling that changed the whole narrative of Jan 6th. Because remember, we had not, until this time, ever imagined that the president was so intimately involved in every little detail of what was happening specifically on January the 6th, never mind that he wanted to drive up to the Capitol himself, never mind that he was going to go up to the Capitol and try overthrow incoming presidency i mean this is incredible stuff that we found out from cassidy hutchinson and we're going to be listening to a lot of her clips tonight but i promise you it's not just a recap of what you heard because i got lots of new additional detail which you're going to find really interesting because it connects some of these dots that are just missing from the jan 6 investigation Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to explain a little bit more about what was going on at the willard hotel but also how the other militia groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and also a militia group that you've not heard a lot about, the one Praetorians or the first Praetorians, uh, about how they are integrated into uh, what is becoming the biggest crime imaginable by any political person. You know, frankly, uh, these days I've been wondering if this might actually land up being the first U.S. president to commit treason. And I think that's why it might be where we're heading as we keep analyzing all these different crimes and the influences. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with foreign influences. And we'll cover some of that tonight as well, when we talk about uh, the various, particularly Russian operatives that are involved in each section of this crime. Uh, It's becoming more and more obvious to me that behind almost every conspiracy, there was a Russian operative doing their work uh, along the way. But let's begin by taking a listen to Cassidy Hutchinson talking a little bit about the crowd size. You remember that President Trump, the former president, had quite a thing about crowd sizes. He lied about the crowd size of his first inauguration. So you know that even on the way out, he's not going to be happy when the crowd is in full. And the reason he wasn't uh, happy was because he's most of his bands were bearing arms because they were about to try and overthrow the government. So they couldn't come into the secure area. So there's this really interesting conversation that goes on about whether you allow these proud boys and these uh, Oath Keepers in with their weapons because they're not going to kill him. They're not going after Donald Trump. They're going after somebody else. Interesting comments from him. So we're going to listen to that. I got to say, most people said to me this is like a, a John Dean moment. I, you know, I loved Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. I thought it was breakthrough stuff. It, it certainly turned the table on everything we had known up until that particular day. But I'm not quite sure it's the John Dean moment yet because there seems to be. A lot of John Dean moments still to come, especially now that we know that Pat Cipollone, the White House Counsel, who's tried so hard to get the president not to commit these crimes, that he is now being subpoenaed. It looks like he'll try cooperate. We'll see if he does. He's been resistant up until now, but you know, Pat Cipollone might in fact be our John Dean, and Cassidy Hutchinson maybe not quite, not quite. Uh, Maybe she's the Alexander Butterfield. I don't know. Could be that that's who she is. But I digress. Let's go back to January the 6th and figure out exactly what happened as Donald Trump wanted more crowds.
1: In one text, uh, you write, but the crowd looks good from this vantage point. As long as we get the shot, he was effing furious. And the text messages also stress that President Trump kept mentioning the OTR, an off the record movement. We're going to come back and ask you about that in a minute. But could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson?
2: He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out at capacity for uh, all attendees. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing, Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in, but he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in.
1: And did you go to the rally in the presidential motorcade? I I was there, yes, in the motorcade. And were you backstage uh, with the president and other members of his staff and family? I was. And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area.
2: When we were in the offstage announced area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons which I previously stated was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in, but another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full, and he was angry at that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons. What the Secret Service deemed as weapons and are our, our weapons. <laughs> but when we were in the off-stage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of. You know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away.
1: Just to be clear, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that the president wanted to take the mags away and said that the armed individuals were not there to hurt him?
0: That's a fair assessment. I mean, just think about it. Think about it. a president of the United States, you know, responsible for making sure the governance is working effectively, that the there's a peaceful transition of power, and the only thing he cares about on that day is the crowd numbers and that he looks popular. But also, he doesn't care about the fact that they're armed. In fact, it seems to be a you know a feature that he's quite proud of. He knows they're armed and they're not there to hurt him. So. Who cares? They're obviously going to hurt other people, forgetting that the president of the United States is everyone's president, despite what Donald Trump might think. So can you imagine this poor uh, young aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, being responsible because that's basically what Pat Cipollone told her, is make sure that the president does not go up there with him. Can you imagine her having to shoulder all this incredible weight on that day? must have been incredibly difficult for her. But she does seem very well put together. She describes all these different events that took place on that day. I am particularly struck by the lack of control around the president. I mean, we all hear about guardrails. We've spoken about guardrails, but there were none, obviously, around Donald Trump on January the 6th. But there was also, you had, you get the sense that the guy was completely nuts and completely unhinged. He's throwing food at the walls of the White House, you know, demanding that uh, the secret service drive him up to the Capitol Hill so he can overthrow a government. Grabbing the steering wheel of his own security detail, you know swearing up and down left, right, and center to everybody about whether the people are armed. he's the president of the United States doesn't care that he might be in danger i mean this this guy lost grips with reality in those last maybe throughout the entire presidency, but certainly feels like during that period of time he was unraveling, and there was nobody able to control him. Just think about that that there was no you know, the vice president clearly wasn't able to do anything. There was an attempt at the 25th amendment, but even that, you know, fell flat. No one was able to control this guy. He was a, you know, basically a weapon determined to destroy democracy on that day. And he was going to do that regardless. It's absolutely stunning when you think about how close we got to absolute calamity that day. And as you listen to this next piece here, where they talk about the same president wanting to go on a I guess they call it an off-the-record movement, which is basically they're taking him on a ride or, or taking him somewhere which is not previously planned. And this was his attempt to try and get from from the ellipse where he was giving his speech to the Capitol directly and personally so he could lead the mob all the way into the insurrection and the coup attempt uh,
1: let's look at a clip of one of your interviews discussing that issue with the committee when you were in one text uh you write but the crowd looks good from this vantage point as long as we get the shot he was effing furious and the tech uh let's look at a clip of one of your interviews discussing that issue with the committee when you were talking about a scheduled movement did um anyone say what the president wanted to do when he got here
2: no. Not that I can specifically remember. I remember I remember hearing a few different ideas discussed with between Mark and Scott Perry, Mark and Rudy Giuliani. I don't know which conversations were elevated to the president. I don't know what he personally wanted to do when he went up to the Capitol that day. Um, you know, I, I know that there were discussions about him having another speech outside of the Capitol before going in. I know that there was a conversation about him going into the House chamber at one point.
1: As we've all just heard in the days leading up to January 6th, on the day of the speech, both before and during And after the rally speech, President Trump was pushing his staff to arrange for him to come up here to the Capitol during the electoral vote count. Let's turn now to what happened in the president's vehicle when the Secret Service told him he would not be going to the Capitol after his speech. First, here is the president's motorcade leaving the ellipse after his speech on January 6th. Ms. Hutchinson, when you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go?
2: When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the chief of staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, I I looked at Tony and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off the record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, you don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. Strong, very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, Sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engle grabbed his arm, said, Sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engle and Mr. When Mr. Ornato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his
1: clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Ornato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story for Mr. Ornato?
2: Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story.
1: Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato? Ever after that, tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue?
2: Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue.
1: And despite this altercation, this physical altercation uh, during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Here's what Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary at the time, wrote in her personal notes and told the committee about President Trump's desire to go to the Capitol after returning to the White House. When you wrote POTUS wanted to walk to the Capitol, was that based solely on what the president said during his speech or anything that he or anybody else said afterwards? So to the best of my recollection, I believe when we got back to the White House, he said he wanted to physically walk with He'd be fine with just writing the piece. But that's my recollection. He wanted to be a part of the march.
0: Central limousine?
1: Yes. President Trump did not go to the Capitol that day. We understand that he blamed Mark Meadows for that.
0: This is an incredible moment. When you think about the President of the United States wanting to lead an armed insurrection, basically have a mob of armed people behind him as he heads towards the Capitol, in an off-the-record unplanned event, you know, they would have turned that motorcade, it's not just one car, we're talking about a, a motorcade, that in the middle of what is already an unsettled scene with people running around with weapons and marauding around the Capitol, they were going to try to get this motorcade all the way up to the Capitol, which is hard to do anyhow, even if you're the president. And he was going to then have a speech outside, or believed to, we have been planning a speech outside the Capitol or then inside the Capitol. Now, you remember what those pictures inside the Capitol looked like that day? There were thousands of people running around that place, urinating all over the place, defecating, grabbing stuff. How was he going to get in there and do a speech and then insist that Mike Pence overthrow the election results? I mean, This is insanity and clearly illegal, obviously. His two security detail over there, by the way, are not your typical Secret Service security detail. These are Trump's security detail. They're sort of mobster types, not to impugn any of their reputations, but they're a little, you know, they're not your typical secret service kind of guys. These are the kinds of people that normally would do this thing for, for Trump, but even they wouldn't do it. And the fact that he actually wanted to firstly grab a hold of the steering wheel and take control of the vehicle, and then secondly, strangle his own security detail, his friends, it's absolutely stunning that uh, these events took place and yeah, got anywhere near this far into the process of maybe even doing any of that is just beyond comprehension. You know, when the Pat Cipollone used the expression, every crime imaginable, this is really what it's looking like. We're looking at so many conspiracies, so many different crimes, and all committed by Donald Trump. and uh, He's certainly the ringleader, and then carrying all his henchmen along with him to commit all these crimes. And then these poor young aides like... Like Cassidy Hutchinson is over there trying to stop all this because everyone else is in it already. Everyone else is trying to make coin off it. Uh, you know, it's just shocking and distressing that it took a 25 year old like Cassidy Hutchinson to actually get something done to stop these incredibly wayward plans that could have really jeopardized the entire democracy. So, you know, talk about craziness. Let's talk about hanging Mike Pence because that's, of course, what the thing was after Mike Pence had let Donald Trump down. He is suggested to the crowd that, you know, Mike Pence is betraying him. And therefore, the crowd called for his hanging. And this isn't how that all unfolded that morning.
2: A couple minutes later, so likely around between 2.15 and 2.25. I know the tweet went out at 2.24. I don't remember if I was there when the tweet went out or if it happened right afterwards but Jim had called I answered the phone said one second he knew it was I guess he knew it was man I, I introduced myself but I, I don't remember if he called my cell phone or if he had called one of Mark's um but I answered the phone and said one sec Mark's on the hall I'm going to go hand the to him. he said okay so I went down I asked the ballet if Mark was in the dining room ballet said yes I opened the door to the dining room, briefly stepped in to get Mark's attention, showed him the phone, like flipped the phone his way so he could see it said Jim Jordan. He had stepped to where I was standing there holding the door open, took the phone talking to Jim with the door still propped open. So I took a few steps back. So I probably was two feet from Mark. He was standing in the doorway going to the Oval Office dining room. They had a brief conversation and in the crossfires, you know, I heard briefly like what they were talking about, but in the background, I had heard conversations in the Oval Dining Room at, the po- at that point, talking about the hang Mike P- Pence chance.
1: That clip ended, Miss Hutchinson, with you recalling that you heard the President, Mr. Meadows, and the White House Counsel discussing the hang Mike Pence chance, and then you described for us what happened next
2: wasn't until Mark hung up the phone, handed it back to me. I went back to my desk. A couple minutes later, him and Pat came back, possibly Eric Hirschman too. I'm pretty sure Eric Hirschman was there, but I'm, I'm confident it was Pat that was there. Um, I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. To which Pat said something, this is getting out of control. I'm going down there. And at that point, Mark stood up from his couch, both of his phones in his hand. He had his glasses on still. He walked out with Pat. He put both of his phones on my desk. He
0: said,
2: "Let me know if Jim
0: calls." And they walked out. You know, just fascinating detail that no one seemed to care inside the White House that the president believed the vice president deserved to be hanged. That's exactly what uh, she seems to be saying there. It's an absolutely unbelievable turn of events that happened on January the sixth. And now that we have this incredible detail, you know, it reminds me what Donald Trump and his henchmen really did was they built an army. You know, they've got the Proud Boys. They got the Oath Keepers, they got the QAnon supporters, they got the First Praetorians, and they brought them all to the Capitol. And so the president was well aware that he had a loyal army that could go and kill and shoot and maim and take over whatever they needed to do inside the Capitol. Of course, he wanted them in. He was allowing them in. He demanded that the gates be opened and all these armed people who should never be anywhere near capital at all, were allowed in. And then he was going to use them as an army, as a private personal army, to overthrow the election results just because, just because he did not want to lose. There is no valid reason for anything else he did, just something he felt like he deserved because, I guess, who he is. I don't know what his background is in terms of this. People say he's a narcissist. Clearly, he is to believe that. But you've got all these enablers around him. You know, you've got all these people like Meadows and Ginny Thomas and Mike Flynn and Bannon and Cleland Mitchell and Navarro and Sidney Powell. And you've got to wonder, where do all these people come from? Who are they? And why are they enabling him all the way to the very end? And I think that some of the answers are really interesting. I mean, certainly when you look at something like the Oath Keepers, you know, The Oath Keepers didn't just show up in in America as the Oath Keepers. The Oath Keepers showed up as a result of Ron Paul, Rand Paul's father of the Tea Party fame. You know, we've reported extensively about how Rand Paul likes to go to Moscow and hand letters over to Vladimir Putin as the mailboy for the Kremlin. Well, his father was just as fond of going to Russia, visited Russia as many, many more times than anyone else in his position as a congressman. But also, look what he told RT back in, I can't read the date here, but he wants to cast Russia as an enemy, and it's wrong. The you you know, the Russia is not our enemy. So clearly, the Ron Paul and Rand Paul alliance with Russia goes way back to maybe the eighties, uh, or even maybe maybe eighties a little too soon, but certainly the nineties and early two thousands. And of course, we know that Rand Paul, as recently as twenty seventeen, was uh, delivering a letter to Putin from Trump. Now, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because these oath keepers. You know, led by the Stuart Rhodes, we don't really know where they get all their funding from. We don't really understand who funds them, who directs them, who incites all their thinking. It could very well be that it comes out of Russia because every time I turn any one of these little rocks over in my investigation of the insurrection on January the 6th, there's a little bit of Russia involved in almost everything. So, you know, keep that in mind. We'll talk about the Oath Keepers. We'll talk about the First Praetorians in just a second. But the other big part of the testimony that came out of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony the other day was about Mark Meadows' intention to go to the Willard Hotel. Now, the Willard Hotel, as you see here in this picture, is just uh, across the street from the White House. It's that little hotel, you, it's a building you see with a bit of an angle in it. Uh, that's Pennsylvania Avenue. The Treasury Building is that palatial-looking building in between the Willard Hotel and the White House. The White House is, of course, that little White House. Um, so you know, staying at the Willard Hotel were people like uh, Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone, and they were having a war room over there, what they described as a war room. And Mark Meadows wanted to go over there on the 5th, the night before. And this is a very key part of the testimony, which I thought was so educational from Cassidy Hutchinson. And she describes that it was the president himself who wanted Mark Meadows to go over to meet with Stone and Giuliani and plot the next day's events. So this is important because as we look at a conspiracy and who's directing that conspiracy, the fact that the president instructed his chief of staff to go and meet with his cohorts, with his co-conspirators at the, the um, at the Willard Hotel is very, very significant. So here is the clip as they're talking about things that went on at the Willard Hotel. If you can find it, here we go.
1: The night before January 6th, President Trump instructed his Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, to contact both Roger Stone and Michael Flynn regarding what would play out the next day. Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that President Trump asked Mark Meadows to speak with Roger Stone and General Flynn on January 5th?
2: That's correct. That is my understanding.
1: And, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Meadows called Mr. Stone on the 5th?
2: I'm under the impression that Mr. Meadows did complete both a call to Mr. Stone and General Flynn the evening of the 5th.
1: And do you know what they talked about that evening, Ms. Hutchinson? I'm not sure. Is it your understanding that Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, and others had set up what has been called, quote, a war room at the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th?
2: I was aware of that the night of the 5th.
1: And do you know if Mr. Meadows ever intended to go to the Willard Hotel on the night of the 5th?
2: Mr. Meadows had a conversation with me where he wanted me to work with Secret Service on a movement from the White House to the Willard Hotel so he could attend the meeting or meetings with Mr. Giuliani and his associates in the war room.
1: And... What was your view as to whether or not Mr. Meadows should go to the Willard that night?
2: I had made it clear to Mr. Meadows that I didn't believe it was a smart idea for him to go to the Willard Hotel that night. I wasn't sure everything that was going on at the Willard Hotel, although I knew enough about what Mr. Giuliani and his associates were pushing during this period. I didn't think that it was something appropriate for the White House chief of staff to attend or to consider involvement in. I made that clear to Mr. Meadows. Throughout the afternoon, he mentioned a few more times going up to the Willard Hotel that evening and then eventually dropped the subject the night of the 5th and said that he would dial in
0: instead. So that is a very critical moment. I think it's it got lost a little bit in the coverage because what it does is it links What was going on inside the White House, which is Mark Meadows and company, what they were doing to coordinate the coup on January the 6th with Trump's other team outside at the Willard Hotel, which were organizing a lot of the other stuff that was going on in the coup, including coordinating the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the militias to get ready the next day with their weapons to storm the Capitol. So you have a really significant contact then. And a a directed contact on the 5th, the night before the coup, between Mark Meadows and Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn. So you've got the coming together of these two conspiracies, which right now at least appear to be sort of separate. But when you look at them having these meetings on the 5th, and in fact, they did have meetings on the 5th it's very significant that there's now a conspiracy that they can be seen and maybe even heard discussing the events of the next day. So that's all very significant. But there's more to the events that happened inside the Willard Hotel room and the fact that the war room was there. I have only a few pictures of the war room after plenty of research that we've done into this, but I'll show you one of them. There you can see Rudy Giuliani. This is actually taken... I think the day of the insurrection or the attempted coup. So I think it's the sixth. I don't think it's just taking place on the fifth. And you can see Rudy's there in the Willard Hotel. He's writing some notes. He's got to, you know, do whatever one does in a meeting. And, and when we were researching the story on narrative TV, we had a lot of questions around who this dude was, this rather tall looking guy with a white tank top with all those entry cards that you get at concerts. I'm surprised they had them at a coup attempt, but there you go. And so we asked a lot of questions about who this dude is and we were able to find out exactly who he was by helping I uh, use facial identity um, technology. We were able to identify this guy on the right here as the same person. And then, you know, this is how we discovered that he is in fact, Philip Lulesdorf director of business operations of something called the first amendment Praetorians. The first amendment Praetorians are sort of the elite version of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. They're the, you know, the Marines, the super special service training guys. These guys are top notch. And they are a big piece of what happened on the coup on January the 6th that has not received a lot of public attention. And Philip A. Lulsdorf is interesting from a number of perspectives. He's the Director of Business Operations of the First Amendment Praetorians, but he's also, interestingly enough, a Russian royal family member. I, I'll put him as that. I can't remember his exact title, but he he certainly uh, has some uh, Russian royalty in that, which is interesting. He's also a poker player by trade. That's what he does. But he is a very specialized military guy. And along with the other leadership of the First Amendment Praetorians, people like um, Robert Patrick Lewis, you might've heard of his name, Scott Kesterson, Jen Paquette, and Mark Fallon, this is the elite squad that was really put together to handle what was going to happen after the coup. Now, I don't know if they ever got to do whatever they said they were going to do, but certainly this is the very best of the best that they were able to put together for that day. And uh, it is Robert Patrick Lewis um, saying he's drawing a line in the sand. A military law enforcement and IC vets are drawing a line in the sand. So I bring this up because there's this war room where Mark Meadows is calling in, where he got General Flynn calling in or being present. You've got Giuliani there, you've got Roger Stone there, and you've got this guy who happens to be director of operations for the First Amendment Praetorians, one of the militia groups that is essentially helping to coordinate the coup attempt. And boy, does this now look like an actual military coup. I mean, it conducted and ordered, directed by the president of the United States, coordinated out of the Willard Hotel, and being supported by a bunch of military vets, uh, which is what typically happens when you have these kind of military coup events. So I think there's a lot of attention that still needs to be played to these guys at the First Amendment Praetorians and how they interacted as well with the Proud Boys and how they interacted with the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers. This is going to be a significant level of detail, which I think we're going to find out from the committee in the next few weeks. But clearly what we're seeing now is a vast conspiracy. Not just a vast conspiracy to protest, to change the the votes or to overturn the votes, but an actual vast conspiracy to conduct a coup, to overthrow the government of the United States, replace it with a dictatorial government that would then change everything about the American system forever. This is how big a deal this was. And it involves thousands and thousands of players. And you're seeing it now being put in front of us together by this committee, piece by piece by piece. And it is very dramatic. Because, you know, well, who knows what would have happened if that succeeded. But the idea of a violent coup like that also just doesn't happen organically, normally, domestically. There are foreign influences involved in this. And we've been able to identify certainly some of the Russian forces that are involved in this. There's certainly Chinese forces all the way through. And I say forces, I mean, influence forces like uh, journalists and other operatives that were able to augment and try and empower this coup to take place. And it's interesting. I say that today because, you know, today's the very day that Russia says that it is, you know, putting down its big wall uh, to separate it from the West. And today's the day or this week that Joe Biden was in Europe, uh, introducing a massive new amount of military presence in Europe, in Poland, in particular, permanent presence in Poland, more troops to Ukraine. And of course, we had Sweden and Finland join NATO this week. We are seeing the forming of these two alliances in a war configuration. We're seeing China and Russia, on the one hand, unite and separate themselves from the world. And we're seeing the rest of the world, the democracies of the world, unite as well and form an opposition to this Chinese Russia uh, alliance. And yet, that's exactly the same tension we also saw taking place on January the 6th. It's the same players. It's Donald Trump, who we know is a Russian asset. And we know that Vladimir Putin was involved in, in many aspects of the Donald Trump presidency. So it's not hard to imagine that it would be serving their interests, China's and Russia's interests, to overthrow the government, to weaken democracy as their their anointed leader, uh, Donald Trump, was being forced out of power, which is exactly what they were doing. But you can see how all these pieces start to add up and you can see that we are still very much in the early stages of a multi-stage attack on democracy. We are, we're nowhere finished. This particular war we're in against the autocrats, the Chinese and the Russians. And we can now, I think, to say it that way are, you know, are determined to destroy democracy, are determined to destroy the West, are determined to destroy America. And, uh, it's up to America to figure out exactly. How they're going to respond. So far, the president has done a remarkable job, in my opinion, in lining up the world in a strong united front against these autocrats. But, you know, that war, it could be a real war. It could look like a real war. Will act like a real war. It could be on our borders before we know it. So this is why it's so important that the truth be told about January the 6th, that we don't just allow some of the truth to be told. We need to know exactly what happened and the people who are responsible for it need to be put in jail because that's the only way we can stop it from happening again. And that's why this is such a laudable effort by the uh, January 6th committee. I am going to end the show there because I have uh, some other things to talk about, but my voice is slowly disappearing on me, so I'm going to give up on on trying to force it. But I did. uh, just want to be able to have some time with you today to talk about Cassidy Hutchison's testimony and look ahead also, I think, to what will be fascinating testimony by Pat Cipollone, You know, hopefully he testifies willingly and and as sharing as she was, but you know this is a very different story than any of us. And I thought I had the story down before all of this. This is a very serious story. This was a military coup, and I would say not only just a military coup attempt. It was an attempt to do this for a foreign government who is at war with us, which in my opinion counts as treason. So perhaps we are seeing. Uh, the makings of the first American president may be ultimately charged with treason certainly what I'll be looking at in the coming weeks. And uh, thank you for being here tonight. I want to remind you to please support Narrative at patreon.com forward slash narrative. We're meant to be on hiatus. We're not even meant to be doing programming, but uh, every week I'll be back not with live shows like this, but I'll be back with some repeat programs for the next three or four weeks. Uh, some of our best stuff from Narrative, but uh, please uh, don't forget to try and support us at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Our new season starts in September and we need your money to be funded. On that note, have a good night, everybody.